Well, good morning. Good morning to our traditions audience and to those watching online. Good to be with you this morning. And we are going to continue looking into the word in Revelation chapter two this morning in our Victoria series. But I do need to I, I need to mention something that I was supposed to mention last week and I totally spaced it. That happens to me sometimes. When I'm really focused. Uh, and you might have noticed some familiar faces back around this last week because Pastor Cal and Pastor Tina returned to us from a well-deserved sabbatical. Let's give them a hand. Pastor Cal's right over here. And, and Pastor Tina is around the building as usual, taking care of stuff or in traditions this morning. And uh, just excited to have them back. Pastor Cal is serving as our uh, business administrator and missions pastor. Pastor Tina is serving as our next steps pastor, overseeing all of our discipleship processes. And so if you're like, man, I need to grow in my faith. I need a next step. Start with Pastor Tina. That's a great place to start. Um, but we're excited about that. I, I'm excited. I was just thinking this morning, it's only been two weeks since uh, we began our Renew Conference. And men, it's only been a month since we had our men's meeting. And I was just thinking, Man, a lot of things, God has done a lot of things. God has done some significant things in us and through us. And over the weekend, you know, I hit the weekend this week a little bit tired and exhausted. And I felt like the Lord was reminding me all weekend, don't forget to walk in the things that I've taught you. Don't forget to walk in the new things that I've taught you. And I just want to say that to you this morning. It has nothing to do with my message, actually. But I just felt that on my heart to say to you, don't forget to walk, to live in the things that God has been teaching you and imparting to you. Do not forget those things. You actually see that as we read through in our Bible reading plan, we're in Exodus, we're, we're seeing God begin to out, unravel the law. And in Deuteronomy, at the end of this kind of section of the Bible, you'll see Moses multiple times in there say to the Israelites, don't forget, because we're good at forgetting, aren't we? Even when God shows up, I mean, even the, the Israelites saw God do some amazing miracles and they still forgot rather quickly, didn't they? And they started, you know, God set them free from the most powerful nation in the world. And yet, you know, weeks later, they're like, nobody's going to feed us. We're going to die in the desert. Would have been better to die as slaves. And we, you kind of laugh at it, but I have some days like that. I have some to ask my wife. I have some days like that. I'm like, God, where are you? You know, and I just want to remind you, God has been speaking to you. He's teaching you. And if you're like, hey, I'm new this morning, God is speaking to you. He's teaching you. He wants to, to work in your life and he will uh, speak to you. And we need to remember what he says to us. And so this morning, as we look into the word, I want you to just, as, as Susie so eloquently said in the gathering service, God wants for us to, to hear from him this morning. And so we, this last week, began looking at the seven churches of Revelation, these seven historical churches that God spoke to, but he spoke to them on behalf of all churches everywhere, in every generation, in every culture, and he speaks to us today. And last week, we, we looked at the first church, the church of Ephesus, and some encouragements, some challenges from Jesus there are one, to think and act biblically, in a world where that's often counterintuitive, in a nature where that's often counterintuitive, that we have to allow the Bible to guide our thoughts and determine our behaviors. But we need to do that not just in a, in a robotic uh, behavioral sense. We need, need to do that in a passionate, heartfelt sense, that we need to live out of adoration for Jesus. And that's really what that whole month of January, our theme of devotion and renewing ourselves in love and knowledge of our Savior was all about. And Part of that 
the part we don't always like to talk about is that we have to reject our own sin. We can't make excuses for areas where sin creeps into our lives. We're pretty good at seeing it in other people, aren't we? We're pretty good at pointing it out in somebody else or somewhere else. But sometimes Jesus is like, let's talk about you for a minute. Let's, let's, let's get a little closer to home for a minute. And we have to not make excuses for that, but, but get rid of it and focus on Jesus. And so hope that you are on that journey. And today we're going to look at the second church, the church in Smyrna. Look at your neighbor and say, Smyrna. Just feels like it's not nice, but I, I, you know, it, it's not a big deal. But the church in Smyrna had some different issues. What I want you to notice is there's differences in all these churches, but Jesus is saying essentially the same thing to all of them. Jesus is saying, look, I have done everything necessary for you to be victorious. Jesus has done everything necessary for you and me to be victorious at this thing called life. He has not left us with a bunch of work to do. He hasn't left us with all these problems we need to solve. Jesus has solved all of the major problems. And then he calls us to walk with him as he leads us to the victory that he has already put in place for us. And that's what these letters are about. They're, how do we walk in victory in the midst of a broken world that does not always seem like it has set us up for success? Jesus has and we need to be faithful to him. And so let's look at the church at Smyrna. Again, Revelation chapter two, the second letter, Jesus introduces each letter differently, closes each letter very similarly. Look at how he introduces himself in verse eight. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Now, remember, he writes to an angel. He has sent an angel to each church. This angel represents his ministry in that church. So he says it's to the angel of the church in Smyrna, but it's also to all the people in the church at Smyrna. And he says, these are the words. He, he introduces himself. Jesus has so many titles. He just puts a different one on each, each email, you know. Um, and he says, these are the words of him who was the first and the last, and who, was who has died and came to life again. Now, these titles are significant to legitimize some of the encouragement he's going to give to this church here in a moment. And if you were with us in the Renew series where we looked at who Jesus is, the resurrected Jesus, not just Jesus on the cross, but Jesus on the throne of heaven, Jesus who will return to make all things right, Jesus who will lead us in eternity, that Jesus was described with these same titles, that he was the first and the last, meaning that before the universe was, Jesus was. As far back as you can think, Jesus was back there further. And as far forward as you can imagine, Jesus will be there. There is no question of whether Jesus was always here or will always be here. Jesus sees it all. He will be in it all. Jesus is the first and the last. And so no, no matter where this world is going, Jesus will be there at the end of it. There's no other guarantee of anything else or anyone else that will be there, but Jesus will be there. And then he says this interesting thing that Christians see a lot of significance to and sounds weird if you don't know who Jesus is and what he's done. He says, I died and I came to life again. I died like fully dead, like days in the grave dead, and I came to life again. That's quite an introduction. And that will also be significant to what Jesus has to say to the church because Jesus's victory over death is the key to our own victory 
over challenges that we face in life. Jesus' victory over death is the key to our own victory over the challenges of life. And that's important for us to understand. It's important for this church at Smyrna to understand. It's important for us to understand that Jesus guaranteed us victory by dying for the sins, the evil of humanity, and rising to overcome death, our greatest penalty. When he did that, he won the victory. The rest of, of life in the Bible is about us engaging in that victory. Jesus' death is the key to our life. And so he goes on and he speaks in verses 9 and 10 to this, the church at Smyrna. And he says this, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. It's kind of counterintuitive there, right? I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. It's another counterintuitive statement that Jesus makes. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, but be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Another counterintuitive statement, be faithful to death and you will be victorious. Now, this is not the fun church to preach on. I don't know that any of the seven necessarily are, because in one sense, this is the most discouraging of all the letters. In one sense, in the here and now, if you look at the circumstances surrounding the church at Smyrna. This is the most discouraging letter. According to the here and now, this is the most hopeless letter. He says, it's really bad and it's going to get worse. That's the letter. In the here and now, that's all we could, we could take from this letter. But in another sense, it's also the most encouraging letter. It's the only church that Jesus has no correction for, only encouragement. It's the only church that he says, just keep being faithful at what you're already doing. It's the only church that he says, you're actually rich in my eyes. So in one perspective, this is horrible. And then from another perspective, from Jesus's perspective, they are in a great spot. It's counterintuitive. How do we reconcile those two perspectives. And let's take a look at their situation. Smyrna was an interesting place. It was not the biggest city in Asia Minor, but it was the second biggest to Ephesus that we talked about last week. But Smyrna was not going to be second place in their loyalty to the Roman Empire. In fact, they were patriots of all patriots. They were more loyal to the Roman Empire. They were determined to be the most loyal Roman citizens. If it was Roman, they were going to celebrate it. If it was, you know, I, I don't know what the Roman version of America would be, but they were the ones like they, they had the bumper stickers and the flags and the, you know, whatever else. They were patriots of all patriots, even to a fault. Even to a fault. They were obsessed with being Roman. They wanted to be the model city of the Roman Empire. And a big part of that was worship of the Roman Empire, of the emperor. 
In fact, it was a, that was a religious cult at the time, instituted by the emperor himself, conveniently, and bought into by loyal citizens of Rome. They saw him not only as a political leader or a military leader, but as their provider, as their God, the one who took care of their physical security, the one who took care of their financial well-being, and the one who protected them from untimely death. They worshiped him as God. And this was the popular religion of the day. This was the popular thing to get on board with. This was the thing that if you were worshiping the emperor, you were in the cool club, you had it going on, things were going well for you. And so much so that in Smyrna, you actually had to have that stamp of approval. You had to be showing up and they had multiple temples just to worship the emperor. It was unique to the city. You had to be showing up, worshiping at the temple. You had to be like, oh yeah, I go to that emperor temple. Oh, you go to that emperor temple? Okay, which emperor temple do you worship at? And if you didn't have a good answer to that question, you were ostracized. You had to be making sacrifices and and donations and all of the things that we would do for the one true God, you had to do to the emperor and you would get symbols of, of recognition. You would get social symbols. You would become known in the community. You could only be elevated in the community if you participated in that. In fact, if you refused to participate, you would be ostracized economically, your business, your mode of income, would be neglected, you would get ripped off because the price would not be the same for you as it was for all of the other Roman emperor worshipers. And you would also not receive the protection of the Roman authorities. So your financial well-being and your physical security would be at risk if you did not worship the emperor. Not only that, it was against the law, so you could be punished for it. You can see the setup here. This is not going in a a good place. This is not going in a good direction if you are a Christian and you worship the one true God, right? But in many places around the empire, Christians had a unique unique, uh, agreement because they were seen as coming out of the Jews and the Jews alone among all the people of the empire had kind of a pass. They had a situation. They had worked out a deal with the Romans, partially because they were really stubborn and the Romans knew they're either going to fight to the death or we can work out a deal with them. Partially because they were at the extreme end, one end of the empire and it would have been difficult to manage them. And partially because they had populations in all of the major cities around the empire. And so the Romans tolerated Jewish worship. They tolerated the Jews remaining Jews as long as they did a couple things, as long as they prayed for the emperor, And as long as they would make sacrifices to God on behalf of the emperor, they would kind of be given a pass from actually worshiping the emperor. And so Christians were often seen in that light. They're, well, they're basically Jews, right? Was how the Romans saw them. They're a small group. They're a minority. Well, in some places, as Christianity became more known, and as in some places, Jews were not wanting to be associated with Christians and were even jealous of many Jewish converts that were often, the early Christians often were one out of Jewish synagogues, you can understand this created a little bit of a a frustration there. And so in some places, some of the Jews were making a point of going to the Roman authorities and showing how different Christians were than the Jews. And so what would happen is the two majority populations, the Romans, which would have been the the most powerful majority, and the Jews, which would have been the only other tolerated minority, are both saying they're the enemy. 
They're the enemy. And so Jesus says to them, there's affliction and there's poverty. That's the physical, the physical security and the financial well-being were already threatened. But now because there is a number of Jews that he calls, this is pretty intense. He says, these Jews, though they are ethnically Jews, though they worship at a synagogue, they're actually no longer Jews. They have forfeited their Judaism and now are followers of Satan. Why? Because they are betraying the new Israel. They're betraying Christians. They're betraying the followers of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. That's an interesting statement. And that statement has unfortunately been used by Christians at times in anti-Semitic ways that is not intended. What Jesus is saying here is that those Jews that have, have rejected Christianity in such a hostile way have also abandoned their own faith as, as Jews, as God's chosen nation in the world. And so these are some pretty harsh words. And this is what the, the church in Smyrna is facing. They're facing not only these, this affliction, this physical threat, this financial threat of poverty, but Jesus says it's going to get worse because now the Roman authorities are not, not only going to refuse protection for you, they're actually going to move into active oppression. You're going to be imprisoned. Some of you may face death. It's going from bad to worse. And by the way, a theme in Revelation, maybe the most well-known theme in Revelation outside of the church and even inside of the church is this idea of the mark of the beast. And, and every generation has had its theory about what the mark of the beast is. And, you know, if you watch enough Christian television, you'll get about eight different answers of what the mark of the beast is and all that kind of thing. And sometimes we joke about it and sometimes we take it really seriously. But the mark of the beast that Revelation describes to us is exactly what we see here in Smyrna. It's people being forced and willingly attributing loyalty and allegiance to someone other than God for physical security, for financial well-being, and for protection from death. That's the mark of the beast. When you pledge your allegiance, you pledge your loyalty that can only go rightfully to the one true God, to a different leader or a different system that is supposed to guarantee you those things, that is receiving the mark of the beast. When you trust anything other than Jesus for your physical well-being, for your financial well-being, and for protection from death, you, that is taking on the mark of the beast. And you're like, wait, 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 that's not an actual mark. And I would say, I know. And in some places and cultures, there have, has been a mark. There has been some sort of legitimacy saying, I attribute loyalty. In Roman culture, it was if you checked in at the, at the right emperor temple, right? But what we have to be aware of is, Jesus, you are the provider of my financial well-being. Jesus, you are the source of this physical life. And nothing in this world is used other than as a tool by you to take care of my financial, my physical security and praise the Lord for doctors and medicine and all those things, because that is provision from God in creation. But it's God who's the provider. He's the source of all that is good in the world. Financial well-being. Praise the Lord for good economies in the world. Praise the Lord for, for business people that think well about how to give jobs and improve society. But they are not the providers. God is. And praise the Lord for governments that govern well, but they are not the God who provides for us. God is. 
And at times throughout history in every culture and even around the world today, there are oppressive cultures and oppressive rulers that say, I'm the provider. And if you don't come to me and give me your allegiance, then I will not protect you physically. I will not allow you to be prosperous financially. And I might even take your life away because I'm in charge here. That is the symbol of the devil's rule. And that is what sin brings into the world, is the devil's authority. And that is always what human beings are afraid of. Physical pain, financial poverty, and death, right? That is what the competition is over. That is where trust is found or broken. And I want to just pause for a moment to remind us that what we get to do here this morning is an incredible blessing. The fact that we drove here, broad daylight, really nothing to be afraid of. We get to stand here with a bunch of other believers with the family of God and be reminded, wow, there's people of every generation. There's people of every ethnicity. There's people of every background, good, bad, and not so popular. You know, there's people, and we are family together, worshiping unashamedly in the presence of God. In fact, broadcasting it on the internet to the entire world, right? And why do we get to do that? Because we are not oppressed like this. We have incredible freedoms that we celebrate. But can I remind you, could I say that to remind you that that is not the case for many Christians around the world? That is not the case for many Christians around the world. And while we hear of different justice issues, some that are popular and some that are very unpopular, can I remind you one of the great injustices in history is peaceful people being oppressed because they loved Jesus. That's one of the great atrocities of history. One of many, no doubt. But there are brothers and sisters around the world, the Bible says to pray for them because they are the church at Smyrna right now. And God forbid that ever happen in our culture, but we can learn lessons for how we navigate it if it does and for how we navigate it when it does in individual ways, in personal ways. All of these lessons that are applied corporately also apply personally to when we face affliction, when we face poverty, when we face even bad to worse, and when we are threatened with death itself. The lessons of Jesus still apply. And so what does Jesus say to his people in the midst of horrible suffering? I want you to notice that Jesus acknowledges their suffering. He doesn't promise them some false prophetic good that like, it's all going to be better. He says, no, it's going to be worse. But in his acknowledgement, there's empathy. Do you notice what Jesus says? He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. He says, I know the slander of people that should have known me, that should have represented me well, and instead they're representing my enemy. I know. Jesus is not saying that as the all-knowing God who just is like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I know. No, he's saying that as the Messiah who came and experienced it himself. He's saying it as someone who knows personally what it is like to be physically afflicted, ostracized, socially neglected, to live in poverty, to live as a refugee fleeing for his life in his early years. He knows what it's like to be an outcast to society that everyone thinks that he doesn't fit in there. He knows what it's like to live on the run. He knows what it's like to be a target of the authorities. He knows what it's like to be arrested 
and falsely accused, physically abused, and even put to death. He knows. And I want you to know this morning that whatever difficulty, suffering, and pain you have faced or you will face, Jesus says to you, I know. I know what it feels like. I know what you're dealing with. I know what you are walking through. I know what you are feeling. And the promise of God, the promise of scripture is that Jesus understands your pain. He does not deny it. He legitimizes your pain so much so that he came to live in it himself. And let that sink in for a moment. There is nothing that you will experience. There's nothing that you will be bitter about, angry about, broken about, devastated for that Jesus cannot relate to you in. And he wants to relate to you. He understands your pain. And that is why in the midst of your pain, he can say these very counterintuitive words. He says, don't be afraid. He says, do not be afraid. He says, yes, it is bad. And yes, it's, in this case, he says, it's going to get worse. But you do not need to be afraid. How, how can he say that? Unless he's both the first and the last. Unless he sees the end of the story. In fact, he says here, um, you are going to be tested for 10 days. And there's, there's good reason to believe that was not an actual 10 days, but a, a symbolic time. But the point, of, the point of it that I want to draw out for you is Jesus knows when the pain is going to start and he knows when the pain is going to end. It is a set period of time. And Jesus is saying, you know, I know that I, I remember um, the worst part about sports growing up. Uh, obviously, I don't play a lot of them anymore. But um, the worst part about sports is when your coach just wants to condition you, wants to get you in shape. And I remember um, I could run laps all day, but I hated when the coach said, hey, we're going we're gonna to run wind sprints. You know, basically you're going to run as fast as you can back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You're like, what's the point of this? And, you know, it was a lot more discouraging if you didn't know how many that you were going to run in, unless he said, hey, you have to run eight and then you're done. You would be motivated knowing that there was an end to the torture, but there were those occasional practices. There were those occasional practices. And in fact, my coach would time us and he, he would say, if anyone on the team falls short of this time, you're adding two more on. I just thought that was, you know, there, there was some, some devilish stuff going on there. That was not from the Lord. But the, what Jesus says, Jesus is a good coach. Jesus says, hey, there's going to be an end. There's a test coming your way, but there's going to be an end. And Jesus says, because I've gone through it, because I know the end of it, you don't need to be afraid. And I will say this to you today, whatever suffering you're going through, whatever suffering you come to in life, the words of Jesus over and over, one of the most common statements that God makes to his people in scripture is, you don't need to be afraid. Yes, it's scary. He's not denying that. Yes, it's horrible. Yes, you shouldn't just be excited about it. More pain. But he says, you don't need to fear it. You don't need to be afraid. And some of you need to write that on your mirror so you see it every day. Some of you need to repeat it. There have been seasons in my life where I had to wake up day after day and say, you do not need to be afraid because Jesus is with you. 
You do not need to be afraid because Jesus has promised to get you through. You do not need to be afraid because Jesus sees the end of it. And that is true for us in every season, even in the worst suffering. But Jesus does say, and this is an interesting statement in here. He says, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. The devil will test you. So we see here this, this spiritual war going on. We see here that the, the people are suffering as a result of a spiritual war, that, that these Jews that were called to serve God are now serving Satan, he says. And he says here, the devil is going to test you. And that is a weird thing in scripture, the idea of the devil testing us. But when we see it in light of the spiritual war between good and evil, between light and darkness, between God and an imposter wannabe God. It makes so much more sense. The problem is we can't see the spiritual part most of the time. We get a glimpse of it if you're reading the the Bible reading plan with us. You just finished Job, and Job is one of those books that you're just like, really, why? This is why. Because from Job, we are encouraged in these same things, that through it all, God will bring redemption in the end. That Though, yes, the devil tests, it, uh, tests us at times with our worst nightmares, with even the things that we would say, God, please don't let that happen, that the, our, the devil tests us, but God has promised to bring us through. And God even knows that on the other side of it, he will bring greater reward than the devil ever stole from us. And interesting, what does he say to the devil? He says, fine, you can test my servant Job because I know he's not going to fail. God's not betting on himself there. He's betting on Job. He puts, God puts his faith in us sometimes when I don't know that he should. Because he's like, that's my son. That's my daughter. They're going to come through. And when they do, I have so much good on the other side, it will blow their mind. And so you can trust him. You can trust him. You can believe. And we don't always get an answer to our why questions. We get glimpses of it. We know that Jesus is encouraging his church to survive, to be faithful in the midst of suffering so they can be a lampstand, remember? So they can be lights in the darkness. When we suffer correctly for Jesus, people around us are encouraged to trust in Jesus. Is that worth our suffering? If it saves a soul? Jesus says it is. And Jesus demonstrated it with his own suffering. And so Jesus calls us to trust him. What does he say? He says, you're going to be tested by the devil, but be faithful and I will give you the victor's crown. You know that victor's crown was the greatest sign of victory in Greek and Roman culture. It was the, it was the wreath given to Olympians that won their race. There was no greater crown than the victor's crown. And Jesus is saying, if you will stick through it to the end, if you will be faithful, you will be victorious and I have a reward for you. I have a reward for you that will make it all worth it. They had this picture of the Olympians that, that when they won, those Olympians could go from being a nobody to being one of the, the famous celebrated people in all of the empire. They would go from poverty to, to wealth. They would go and they would suddenly become the greatest celebrities in the empire. And Jesus says, that's going to be your place in my kingdom. I have reward for you. I have, I have all sorts beyond your wildest dreams. I have good for you. It's going 
to be worth it. And the question for us, remember I said Jesus has done everything necessary for victory. The cross and the resurrection are why Jesus can say all of these things that he says to us. Our job is just to be faithful. Faithfulness means trust when it's counterintuitive to trust. And the word of Jesus to a church in suffering, to an individual in suffering, is if you relentlessly trust Jesus in the face of evil, you will be victorious. I want you to notice if you relentlessly trust Jesus, because trust is not trust when it's easy. Trust is not significant when it's easy. Trust does not become faithfulness when it's easy. Trust is when it's hard and you refuse to give up. Relentless trust says, even when all else fails, even when everything is stripped away from me, even when I am confused and I'm out-argued and I'm out-talked and I'm out-thought and I'm out-everything, I will trust Jesus and I will not quit. And that is the steel soul of a believer that allows us to ride through a broken world, even through evil. And make no mistake, the suffering of this world is evil. It is darkness. And our faithful suffering shines light into those who also suffer. I said in one sense, in the here and now, this is the most discouraging letter of all the letters. This isn't a letter that the Smyrnians, you know, I, I don't know what worship song they, they picked to sing after this letter. There's not a lot of them that fit that context super well. It was a very sobering letter in the here and now. But in the bigger picture, in Jesus' perspective, it was the most exciting letter that Jesus wrote. It was the one where he has the most hope for the church. He says, you're not working against yourself. You're not a slave to your own flesh. Yes, you've got some external challenges, but you're on the right track. Just be faithful. And Jesus's perspective always reminds us that the pain is temporary, but the reward is eternal. The pain is temporary. And many of you have faced pain. And often we look back and we say, wow, actually some good things did come out of that pain. Sometimes we don't see it, but Jesus does. Jesus does. So he ends the letter with those sobering, that kind of sobering prophetic warning. In verse 11, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, there are two deaths. There's two types of death. There's physical death and there's spiritual death. Jesus has faced both and overcame. Jesus faced physical death. We know about that on the cross, but he was also facing the spiritual death of the wrath of God against all of human evil. He took that on himself. The father and the son got together and they said, man, there's no way we can save these people and be a just God at the same time unless we do this together. And so the son willingly took all of the just punishment on human evil on himself He faced spiritual death, but because he was pure and sinless and because of the power of the father to raise him from the dead, he overcame physical and spiritual death. And because of that, Jesus says, I have the keys. Jesus is the judge. 
And he judges according to our trust in him, our standing in him, our belief in him. And he says, if you will be faithful through physical death, you will not suffer the second death. That's part of that promise. That's part of that victor's crown. That's the entrance we actually sang this morning. That's the entrance into the reward that he has for us. So I want to ask you this morning to bow your heads. I want you to think about for a moment, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Is it something physical or is it something financial? Is it something happening in our nation or our culture? What is it that you are afraid of? And are you willing to trust Jesus with that? He says with compassion, I know. I know what you're feeling. I know how frightening it is. I know how painful it is. I know. But don't be afraid. Trust in me. I wonder this morning before I pray, online, in traditions, in this room, if you're saying, man, I haven't trusted in Jesus, but I want to. I have not been trusting in Jesus, but I need to. Would you just slip a hand up? I know I won't see them in the other venues, but it's a hand to God. Slip a hand up. Say, God, I need, I need to trust you. Thank you for that hand. Thank you for that hand. Thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. And more importantly, God, I see that. Thank you. God sees you acknowledging your need for him and he has done everything necessary for you to be victorious. Father, I ask for Sound Life Church this morning in all of its places. I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us in our faith, that you would help us to trust you, that no matter what happens in this world around us and no matter what we face personally, affliction, poverty, or even death itself, would you help us to relentlessly trust you through all of it, that you have a victor's crown on the other side, that you have incredible reward that will make all of the pain seem worth it, and will you help us to be a light in this dark world so that others can know that their suffering can have meaning too. We thank you, Lord, that you have guaranteed it. We give our trust to you. We commit our trust to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.